believe that the Lord's leading us and where I believe the Lord's leading us um, collectively as a fellowship here for today. I want to ask you to take your Bibles. They'll put it on the screen, but I still would like for you to, if you've got your Bible, if you'll turn there to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. When you find it, if you'd stand and honor the reading of Scripture. And I appreciate so much you being in service with us today, whether you're a member of our assembly or a long-term adherent or a visitor today. Certainly, if you're a visitor, we want to say a very special God bless you to be in here with us. And if you haven't filled out a visitor card, we'd really like for you to do so. There'll be one in the seat in front of you. Fill it out sometime today and just uh, put it out in the foyer on that table. And we'd just like to have that record. I really am trusting God to do some great things, not only in uh, our church collectively, but individually, but I believe that the message that is going to be preached here today is, can be a, a spark of a work of grace that was once prevalent in the Pentecostal church, but it's not as prevalent in our generation. It's something that, that could lead to some positive uh, work of the Holy Spirit if we'll embrace it. But we'll have, to, we'll have to challenge ourselves, search inwardly, ask ourselves if these things are so. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, let's read this, chapter 2, verse number 13, let's read it slowly. Let you look at the words, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. So Paul here is expressing his willingness to give thanks to the church at Thessalonica. It's the second epistle that he's written. Certainly when you read in the book of Acts, you can see that uh, the record a little bit of Paul's interaction with the church at Thessalonica. And so with this, let's go down farther. That's the, he said, so we give thanks to you. Brethren, you are the beloved of the Lord. Now, I believe in always making a first application of Scripture. What I mean by that is Paul had an intent. He's writing to a particular group of people. This is a historical record. So it's not like we can spiritualize it first. You have to put it in its historical context first. These are living, breathing men and women that he had relationship through his ministry. And he's now writing. He's very thankful for them. And he says that you are beloved of the Lord. But I also believe it has a prophetic application. It's, it's universal in the sense he's writing to all of God's people. Right? It's applicable to every child of God in every generation. We're the beloved of the Lord. Do you ever think of yourself that way? Come on, that I'm the beloved of God. I mean, you're the apple in his eye today. You know, I know that sometimes we can look back and, you know, in some of our famous songs about like a, we call ourselves a worm and things of that nature. And I understand in the context that maybe that writer was making that statement. But if you really look at it in the, in the more accurate biblical application, you're the beloved of the Lord today. And so with this, he then goes farther. He said, because God hath from the beginning, God hath from the beginning chosen you. Now, you know, I've said many times to you from this pulpit, and I borrowed this from one of my favorite preachers, and that was R.W. Shambach. And R.W. Shambach would say, when you would say, well, I found God, he said, God was not lost. He said, you were lost, God found you, and he chose you. And if you can live your life with that revelation, it changes the entire perspective of your first, your relationship with him, and how you view yourself. And this is not a self-help sermon. But this is a biblical alignment to the right perspective of how God sees you and how he desires you to see yourself. You're the beloved of the Lord, and he chose you from the beginning. 
Right? I mean, you and I, 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 I'm not a great planner. I can't plan always weeks, months, and years ahead. But God could look throughout from the beginning of time to the end of time. And he chose you. Right? Now, let's go farther. He chose you to salvation. Right? Because we were lost. Right? I, was, uh, un- I had failed. I was born a sinner and I had sinned. We won't develop that thought in great detail today. But at the same time, God brought salvation to me. I'm saved from the penalty of my sin, right? What's the penalty of my sin? Death, right? Physical death and eternal death. But Jesus Christ was the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for my sin. Man, that'll make you preach right there, won't it? Right? And so, therefore, today, I'm saved. I'm not waiting to be saved. I am saved. I possess this salvation. I was chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. Now, let's not lose sight of that because we're going to really narrowly focus on that phrase here in just a few moments, sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. How many of you know it's very important what you believe? It's very important that you know and, and, and that you be, you're, you're, you're taking the doctrinal belief that you have in your heart from the right source. Everybody speaks. Everybody's got a word, but are you trusting in the right word? Right? And that's what Paul is saying, the sanctification of the Spirit and your belief of the truth. So today's going to be an anointing service, and I'll clarify for you in a moment what that means. And obviously, if I were to give it a subtopic, you could look at that phrase, the sanctification of the Spirit. And that's where we're going to really develop and hear these thoughts in just a moment. So let's pray. We've already prayed. I prayed. Jojo prayed. Now we put the finality. God bless this time. Bless it. God, it's already been said, let preaching be easy in this house. God, but I pray today that the receiving, that Father God, beyond even my ability to share, but the people's ability to receive, I pray that today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. There's a phrase that's in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 where the Apostle Paul makes a reference as he's teaching about resurrection. When he's teaching about resurrection, resurrection is a, a, um, a part of the human existence that's yet to be. Now, it's already established because we have the first fruits of resurrection, which is Jesus Christ, right, raised from the dead. So it's a part of the human existence because we have the hope of resurrection. We have the promise of resurrection. However, Paul, when he's attempting to teach this to the Corinthians, he uses some natural language because we don't necessarily know how to fully identify with the resurrection because um, we've never seen it except for in the person of Christ. Nobody here can raise their hand and say, well, I was physically dead, now I'm resurrected. We're waiting on the resurrection. So Paul used natural examples to teach spiritual truths. Remember that? He said, first that which is natural, then that which is spiritual, okay? So I'm going to attempt to do that for just a few moments because I want to take you into a spiritual anointing here in a moment. But we're going to go back and look at a physical anointing, what that means. One thing you have to remind yourself, you've been a part of the church for a long time. You're familiar with some of the terms that I say and I relate to. But you don't have to remember, you have to remember that there are new people that are coming into the church all the time. Right? And as they come in all the time, they're, they're, they, don't, they don't know what these words are. They don't know what an anointing is. You don't use that in your, in your natural vocabulary when you're, before you get in the church. 
Um, you know, when you were a heathen, you weren't going around and saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to be anointed. Right? Come on now. Y'all with me out there? So we've got to explain what that means for people. It's familiar to us and to anoint uh, an anointing service. Uh, we're going to get into the depth of it, a consecration. Anoint in the uh, biblical sense in the first, perf- uh, the first application is to rub with oil. It simply means to rub with oil, to smear with oil. So let's look at this. Let's go back to Exodus chapter number 30. And I want to show you something from a natural example. This is ancient Israel. And this is the instruction. They have yet to enter into the promised land. They have not yet even erected the tabernacle. So remember, this is a people that are heirs to Abraham. They've been called out of Egyptian bondage. The Red Sea has closed up. They're now in the wilderness, what we would call now the wilderness journey. Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai, and he's gained insight in how that God has chosen for the people to worship him. And that's something I want to remind you of today. There's that word chosen again. God chose the method for us to worship Him. And in that generation, or some say in that dispensation, it was by means of the tabernacle. That was the access point that God gave man to behold His glory, to hear His Word, to learn of Him. He came down on Mount Sinai to confirm confirm His presence to people. I've talked about that so many times. And he also called Moses up on Mount Sinai into the darkness, and he gave him instruction, instruction that would taught the people how to worship God. Let me tell you today, God is holy. You can't just decide in your heart how you're going to worship God. That's the danger of our culture today. It's not that people don't want to worship. They just want to worship according to the dictates of their own heart. But the reality is the heart is sick in the sense of spiritually sick. It's, it's, it's confused. God's given us revelation. So we have to worship God according to his revealed will. So when God gave Moses instruction, this is part of the instruction. And he told Moses to tell the people to do certain things as they developed a system that would allow men and women, families, to come together and worship him. And there was a particular component here, and it's called the anointing oil. We're going to talk about that. It's a sacred anointing. Let's look at it here. It's in Leviticus chapter number 30, I I believe it's, or excuse me, Exodus 30, verse 22 through uh, verse 33. Let's just read it real quick. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and sweet cinnamon, half so much, and 250 shekels of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, and hen. So it's just certain components that God gives very specific instruction to Moses that they are to compound and put together this particular anointing oil. Verse number 25, and thou shalt make it an oil of a holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, which means the perfumer. It's not, again, a word that you and I would use. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So it meant that there was a chemical process, that there were those that had a developed art, just like there are today, put together fragrant, uh, you know, scents, first of all, or also fragrant oils. And so Moses is given instruction with the amount that's to be made and the, and the, and the composition of it and, it and how it's to be made after this, the art 
of the perfumer. It shall be, and look what he called it, a holy anointing oil. Did you hear that? Catch those words. It's a holy anointing oil. It was very critical because it was being sanctioned by God. And verse 26 said that when that is completed, then here said what I want you to do with this oil. You shall take the, you shall take, thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, we didn't take the time, and I don't want to develop that time, but Moses had also given them instruction to the tabernacle. And all the instruments from the brazen labor to the, um, to the altar, to the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, all the things that most of you are familiar with, the Lord said, I want you to, all those instruments, once you've built them and once you've completed them and you've erected them and put them in their place, he said, you shall anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith and the Ark of the Testimony. And the table and all its vessels, the candlestick and its vessels, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, all its vessels, the labor and its foot, thou shalt sanctify them that they may be most holy. Whatsoever toucheth them shall be holy. If anything is going to touch them, it's going to be holy. And thou shalt, then verse number 30, thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This shall be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Now upon man's flesh shall it not be poured. And you say, wait a minute. God said, anoint Aaron and his sons. This is what we would call common man. This would be man apart from the lineage of the priesthood. And those of us that have studied further understand but that there was also, uh, uh, they took the anointing oil and they anointed the king, the prophet, and the priest. But I say this respectfully, the common man, the common worshiper, the common Israelite, man or woman, could not have the sacred anointing oil poured upon him. It belonged exclusively to those that were in these distinct offices. He said, but not only that, you're not to make any other like it after the composition of it. It's holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth any like of it, Whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger shall even be cut off from his people. How many know God takes very seriously things that he gives very direct commandments towards? And if God calls it holy, then it's holy. Now I want you to get a picture image of that because we're not going to look at the anointing that took place of the instruments of the tabernacle. But we are going to look at those that were anointed to serve the tabernacle. But I want you to think about that for a moment. Because you could look at these instruments and you say, well, they're just common instruments. And yes, they were. Some of the instruments were made of wood and then they were overladen with either gold or bronze. And so it was, uh, if you were to take the time to really look at some of the objects that were used to worship God, some of them were just bowls. Some of the King James says snuffers. And I know some of the old timers here said snuffers. My grandma used to be a snuffer, but I didn't know it was in the Bible. That's biblical language, snuffers, and then shovels. There were things because the, the brazen altar had animals that were sacrificed and ashes would accumulate. Well, you had to go in with a shovel and you had to gather those ashes up. But here's the thing. That common instrument that, you know, perhaps any uh, carpenter or that was, had any skill that could make an instrument of either iron with wood like a handle or a stave of some kind, it was just a common instrument that... In theory, you could take that common instrument and you could take it out. Like, let's take that shovel that they're going to use to take the ashes off of the brazen altar and take them outside the camp where they were specifically instructed to dispose of those ashes. It's just a common shovel. 
It's a shovel that you could use to turn over your garden. It's a shovel that you could use if an animal that died at your farm or your home that you could go out in the backyard and you could bury. It's just a common instrument until the anointing of oil, the anointing oil touched it. And the moment that the anointing oil touched it, it's now consecrated for a higher purpose. Now it's suddenly, nothing in its composition internally has necessarily happened in the natural, but because it's anointed, it's set apart for a purpose that it really no longer, yeah, you can in theory still use it to dig a hole in the backyard, but when you do so, you're lowering it down than the intended purpose that God now has in store for it. I want you to get a hold of that. That's getting in your spirit, isn't it? I prayed for that gift of a teacher to be in me today, and I'm really feeling it starting to emerge here. So now let's, that, that was the instruments, and that's all the instruments from the tabernacle itself. Moses said, anoint the tabernacle. So not only did you have the tabernacle with six layers of skins over it and the holy place and the most holy place and all the instruments, Moses actually took that composition of the, of the uh, anointing oil and he anointed every instrument, dedicating it to God. But how many of you know, but if there hadn't been people there to facilitate worship, it would have just been an empty house, an empty tabernacle or tent. It had just been instruments laid up somewhere so God specifically called a people. Who was that people? That was the priesthood of Aaron. It was the lineage of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And so we said, we read there in the Word where they were to be anointed. Now I want you to see that. It's only about 11 or 12 verses we'll read, and then we're going to kind of, I'll start just developing this further. So now let's turn to the book of the Bible that you are most afraid of. But if you'll spend time learning of this book, you'll gain such insight. The book of, say it with me, Julie, the Leviticus, Right? As it deals with the Levitical priesthood, Aaron and the sons of Levi, who are his servants that help him and his sons in the ministry of the tabernacle. Now, remember, now, Pastor Brown, why are you doing all this? Because it's a picture image. God painted a picture image for us, and he stuck it in time so that we could always look at it and have a natural reflection in our mind knowing that there's a deep-seated spiritual principle tied to it come on so now we're in Leviticus 8 and now we see the fulfillment so sometime obviously has passed Moses has gained instruction the children of Israel have been camped at the base of Sinai and from there they've gained instruction of what they're to do and to and and the instruments that they're to build and so there are certain men women that rose up and they began to develop this system of worship because God desires His children to worship Him, right? God has created us to worship Him, right? And we have, we have a, an expression of worship in the tabernacle that we can still glean from today. And the Lord spake, verse 1, unto Moses. So now, so all the instruments have been anointed, and He said, and now, He said, take Aaron and his sons with him, and, and the garments and the anointing oil, and a bullock for a sin offering, and two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. Some of you are getting hungry right now. I said, man, that sounds like a steak dinner right there. And gather thou all the congregation together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. 
And the assembly was gathered together into the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So you can see this, that they're at the door of the tabernacle that's been erected. And so, and Moses is there, and he's got the people on the outside. And Moses said unto the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. And they did it, praise the Lord. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water, cleansing them. And he put upon him the coat, and he girded him with the girdle, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod upon him. And he girded him with the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. It's a very unique attire. You've probably seen the men, you've seen pictures of it many times. And he put the breastplate upon him, and also he put in the breastplate the Urim and the Thummim, from which I've spoken numerous times in days gone by. He put the mitre upon his head, and also upon the mitre, even upon his forehead, he did put the golden plate, the holy crown. As the Lord commanded Moses. So we have the high priest Aaron, who is now uh, fully clothed in the garments that God expected the high priest to wear in his service of the tabernacle. Verse number 10 And Moses took the anointing oil. Now look at this. So the, everything had been erected, but not at all, had not been yet, excuse me, set apart. And he anointed the tabernacle. And all that was therein, and he sanctified them. So that was what he was instructed to do in Exodus, and that's what he's doing here in Leviticus. And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times. And he anointed the altar and his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them. And he poured. Now listen, when we get ready to anoint you in a moment, we're probably not going to pour oil, anointing oil on your head. Because there's some ladies here that I would get in deep trouble if I went around putting this fragrant oil on your head at the way that Moses did with Aaron. But I want you to see this as it's recorded in the Word of God. He poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head, and he anointed him. Put a common right there. Now, we don't actually have a physical a, a record of this in our mind, but later the psalmist, the psalmist is looking back, and he, he's sharing with us a principle, Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is for men to dwell together in unity. He said in Psalm 133, he said, it's like the precious ointment that was poured upon the head of Aaron. The psalmist said that it flowed through his hair onto his shoulders. So he put so much oil. You're talking about ruining clothes in that sense. But it wasn't ruining. It was setting them apart. So it's flowing off of his, off of his head through his beard. His beard is literally dripping with oil. Then it runs on his shoulder, and then the Bible says, Psalm 133 said it runs all the way down to the hem of his garment. So that brother is anointed with a fragrant anointing that could not be washed out of those clothes. He would wash, but those clothes would still have that fragrance every time he put them on in the service of the tabernacle. He's anointed of God. Isn't that a powerful image? Now notice this, though. He anointed him for this purpose, to sanctify him. What a terrible place for no one under the sound of my voice to say amen. But see, that's where we're at in our culture today. A doctrine that was once a vibrant doctrine, a part of the movement that you and I have taken from our spiritual forefathers that we call Pentecostalism is almost lost in the generation in which we live today. He anointed him to sanctify him. What does sanctify mean? It means to set him apart. 
Church family, he was called of God. God had chosen. There were thousands of men in Israel. There were numerous families. There were at least 12 tribes. 13 when you count the, uh, Joseph's, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. So there are at least 13 distinct family heads that God could have chosen. But God said, I'll take the sons of Levi and I'll take the brother of Moses, Aaron, and his sons, and they're going to serve in the priesthood. And so you could not in that dispensation, you couldn't show up one day and say, I feel God's called me to be a priest. Because if you weren't born of the lineage of Aaron then you were born outside of the privileged responsibility and the sacred uh, and privileged opportunity to be able to lead the people in worship. Aaron was chosen and he was sanctified. That meant he was set apart. And let me tell you this. I want to just kind of toss this in. When you understand what true sanctification is, then you understand this principle right here. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. And the sons of Aaron from that day forward, some of them said, well, man, I had aspirations of being a farmer or I had aspirations of being a shepherd. And God said, well, whatever you had aspirations of, I've chosen you. And it's a principle that we've got to get in our spirit again today. And that's why I took you to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 because I wanted you to see that God said that he chose you. And if he chose you and he redeemed you, see, you had no ability to redeem yourself. You were bound unto an indebtedness called the sin debt. And there was nothing that you could pay to redeem you from the sin debt, the sin debt of Adam and your own sin. But Jesus Christ came, born of a woman, and he gave the only commodity, the only thing that could move God in God's economy to release man from their sin debt. And that was the precious blood. That's why the apostles, come on now, I feel Jesus right there. That's why the Apostle Peter said, you were not redeemed by gold or silver. He said, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so today I want you to know nothing has changed. If you confess Christ, you are not yours. You can't just say, well, I'm going to choose this, or I'm going to do this, or I've got this dream, or this aspiration. No, you've got to get up every day and say, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, let your life. Let the kingdom of God, let who I am, God, glorify your name and everything in every part of my person. So when we have a picture image, that fragrant oil is now upon the head of Aaron and his sons, and they don't belong to themselves anymore. They belong to God. They've been chosen to be the priesthood. And I want you to read one final verse of Scripture there in Leviticus chapter number 30. Excuse me, Leviticus chapter 8, it's verse number 30. And Moses took of the anointing oil... And of the blood that was upon the altar, and he sprinkled it upon Aaron. So he's already poured the oil upon Aaron, but now he takes, the, he takes the anointing oil and the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkles it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him. And he sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Sanctification set apart by God, that God chose you. You didn't choose God. 
That's why when you try to do things your way, and that's why when you try to pursue your own will, that's why there's something inside you grieve called the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God lusts to the point of envy. He desires to bring you into alignment with the Father's perfect will. That's why there are some things that when you were a young person and you had certain aspirations and you had certain career choices, and, and as you begin to pursue them, but as you begin to grow closer in your communion with God, all of a sudden there began to be a division. There began a fracture of some type because you begin to realize, wait a minute, that's what I want to do in the natural. That's what I want to pursue in the flesh. But in my spirit, I feel God calling me this direction. And you You've got to arrive at the place where you start saying, God, I'm going to yield all that I am, God. I'm going to daily yield all that I am to you because I was chosen by God and I was called by God, right? And I've been set apart for his purposes. And you see, now, Pastor Brown, so take me, I want to take you deeper if I can today into this lost theology of the modern church, and that is sanctification, So if I can, if I can expound upon it, and I've preached about it many times over the years, but I've got it in my spirit because I've I've showed you a natural example to teach you a spiritual principle. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. See, the bullock and the the goat that was uh, slain to sprinkle the sons of Aaron, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews said it really couldn't take away sin, could it? It really couldn't take away sin. But how many of you know that this man, Jesus, by one sacrifice... For sin, forever, forever sanctify those that he loved and that he's called. And so that you and I today, the reality, hear this today. I just showed you the natural example under the Aaronic priesthood where the sons of Aaron were sanctified to be priests unto God. But how many of you know that that method of worship has now been folded up? Have you ever read a book and you got to the end of the book and it said the end, you folded it up and you put it on the shelf? It was completed. God folded it up. That mosaic law and the means that the children of Israel had to access God has been folded up. And we live in a new covenant today. Oh, my God, I felt the Holy Spirit right there. We live in a new covenant that's based upon better promises. And that's why the writer John in the Revelation called the church, he called you, male or female, whether you are uh, Jew or Gentile, he said you're all kings unto God and your priest unto God. And so today, you have access to God. You have access to His holy presence. And yes, you too have a holy consecration and an anointing. You've been sanctified for God's purposes. I believe that with all my heart. Did you know lost in modern church theology are three words I'm going to throw out at you today, but we're going to focus on the latter. It's, and I, I wrote it this way. We got to find a way to make this relevant again. We got to find a way to, to, to bring a new generation in the church into church discipleship and into doctrinal belief. It can't be just about every time you come together, a feel good sermon of, of some type of, of family and marriage and all that's good. I'm not trying to take away from it. But you got to get a deep seated awareness of what God's called you to do and who God's called you to be and how all this came about. So the first word I'm going to throw out to you today is justification. You need to know that you were a sinner and you were declared guilty. And right as the gavel was about to sound on the great judge's desk, an advocate came out of the corner. And the advocate said, I'll tell you what, I'll do more than defend him or her. I'll take the penalty of their sin and I'll accept death so that they might have life. 
And so then when the gavel did sound, God could look at you and declare you innocent who had previously been almost declared guilty. You were declared guilty, but the gavel had not put the final sound on the judge's desk. And now God can declare you justified, which means it's just as if you had not sinned. Woo! That'll make the modern church run if we could get a hold of it. That's why I don't walk around saying a sinner like me. I walk around saying I was a sinner. I know some of you still start call yourself sinners. I understand why you call it a supposed humility. I don't call myself a sinner. I call myself a saint. See, I was a sinner until I believed in the word of truth. <laughs> and then I realized that I became a new creature in Christ Jesus and old things passed away. Man, what a bad day to have my voice trying to get away from me here today when I've got such good things to share with you. I was a sinner, but now in Christ Jesus, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new creation. Man, I'm not a sinner anymore. He said I'm innocent. Don't be trying to put that junk on me. Don't be trying to say I'm a condemned sinner. No, I'm not. Jesus was condemned in my stead so that I could walk away. I'm justified in Christ. Man, you get a hold of that, and you'll go out of this church shouting. You'll come in shouting. You'll go out and shouting. Come on. Number two, righteousness. Righteousness. Not only am I forgiven, judicial term, guilty, not guilty, but now I'm in right standing with God. That means God's kind of pleased with me. Not necessarily what I do and say, but I found righteousness in Jesus. Right? He's in right standing with God. And because I'm in him, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God's not angry at you today. He poured his wrath out upon his son so he could receive you into his family. Right? And you can be in right standing with God. Right? Do you believe that today? I believe that. How many believe that a new generation in the church needs to get these old doctrinal beliefs in their spirit again? And thirdly, though, is sanctification. Oh, it got real quiet in here on that one. Man, I'll tell you what, I wish I had, you know, had that button that I could push, get a little shock out of somebody right when I need it right there. Sanctification is a revelation that you were set apart before God for the holy purposes of God. Now, I want to say this, and I'm going to take you into a little bit of history before I close this up and pray with you at the altar today. All believers are sanctified in Christ through his blood. I believe that. I believe that the atoning blood of Jesus Christ I believe today, not only does it justify you and it declare you to be righteous, but it also sanctifies you before God. There's a question that I put, but is there a work of the Spirit that produces sanctification or a sanctified life? We read in the text that it was through sanctification of the Spirit. Didn't we read that? Isn't that what the Word said, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13? He said, through sanctification of the Spirit. Did you know that that original doctrine that I'm talking about was one of the key doctrines in the beginning of Pentecostalism. Did y'all know that? Now, many of you do because I've shared this a little bit along the way, but I just feel something in my spirit that maybe it's time that we take our church. Sometimes you got to go back before you can go ahead, right? you got to look back to where you've been to understand how you arrived at where you are, and then you can get a new vision of where God wants you to go. And I know sometimes it's about you individually, but sometimes it's about us corporately. And sometimes it's not just about us, Hebrew First Assembly, but sometimes it's about the movement as a whole. Did you know today that we can trace the origins of our movement, Pentecostal Charismatic, which is the largest, fastest growing branch of the body of Christ in the earth today? 
That from a humble beginning of just a little over 100 years ago, that now Pentecostalism, those that call themselves Pentecostal Charismatics, labor, number over 500 to 600 million believers worldwide. Isn't that a powerful? It is the fastest growing. Matter of fact, many times it's the only part of the gospel. It's the only part of the church that's still growing. Right? Because men and women are witnessing in the power of the Spirit. Right? When they're going to certain countries as missionaries, yeah, maybe some of them are starting coffee shops, but some of them are going over there saying, I didn't come to start a coffee shop. I came to lay hands on the sick. I come to cast out devils. I come to, uh, to denounce that idol so that you could know that there's only one true God. Right? That's, and so it's taking the gospel around the world. I thank God for it. I'm glad to be a part of it. But, you know, when the a Spirit of God began to be, outpoured in the, or be outpouring in the church, you know, 100, 115 years ago, we, we actually had some roots that began a doctrine known as Wesleyan doctrine. And I won't go into all the details of it today. I don't want to bore you, because, but it's not boring. Right? It's very exciting. And some of you today just you don't really know much about your history and so, but I want you to know today that who we are today as Pentecostals is because we found a, a root in a belief system held by the man named John Wesley and his brother Charles, the men that thought or brought Methodism. Methodism today has become something that I want to say today very respectfully, perhaps not what the original founders of the movement hoped that it would, because it was based upon a doctrine of sanctification. It was based upon a belief John Wesley had a personal experience himself. He would later call it entire sanctification. It was a moment that he believed that he had a revelation or a realization that his sins were forgiven and that sin had lost its power. Oddly enough, he was standing outside in a gate or a street called Aldergate, I believe, and some, there was a brother that was reading the prelude to the book of Romans by Martin Luther. How I many know that, you know, just on the surface, a lot of people don't sign up for that type of you know, I want to go down here, this brother, read the prelude to the, not, not just the book, not just the commentary, the prelude to the commentary. But see, when God gets ready to do something, right, he can take what others seem as boring and just, rel- and he can all of a sudden, he can step down right in the middle of it and drop his divine glory. And as John Wesley heard the reading of that uh, prelude to Romans, he said, I found my heart being strangely warmed. Those are his words. He said, I found my heart being strangely warmed, and I realized that I was forgiven of my sin. And he said, not just sin, but my sin. And I was being set free by the power of Christ. And a doctrine began to evolve called entire sanctification. We can't develop that here today But it was a belief that there is a subsequent experience to the new birth, which you and I call the new birth being born again. We believe in the that you receive the Holy Spirit when you get saved. Come on now. We believe that God breathes into your spirit newness of life and you're made whole. But then there was a developed doctrine that believed that there was a second work of grace. (coughs) A second work whereby the Spirit of God empowers the believer to begin, he uses the term to eradicate sin, sanctified from sin, set apart from sin, set apart for the glory of God. Come on, where sin, Romans 6 said, sin shall not have dominion over you, because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. I won't get there today, Lord, like I told you to, because I'm running out of time. But I want you to know, church family, that with the work of the Spirit of God in your life, don't give me this excuse, well, you know, I was born this way. No, you were born again into the kingdom of God. And when you were born again into the kingdom of God, the power inside you is greater 
than your appetite for sin. If Jesus Christ could come out of the grave, if his dead body could be resurrected, then don't tell me you can't mortify every carnal appetite, every carnal desire of sinfulness in the human life. I believe it in my own personal theology. And I challenge you today to recognize that God has empowered you through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so, though, from this doctrine, it, became, it began to morph, and it, be, it actually then became known as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, see, that contrast where we at in today's church, because when we think of baptism in the Holy Spirit, we don't think of baptism of being set free from sin. We think about somebody receiving the baptism with the initial physical evidence of speaking in other tongues, what you and I call the Pentecostal doctrine. Well, as the church began to morph, it morphed, uh, the church being the Methodist church, it began to fracture at one time, like it's about to do today. But it fractured into little holiness movements. So you had little pockets, the holiness church. You had the uh, Nazarene church. You had little pockets of people that felt like the Methodists had lost their way a little bit and they were losing sight of the holiness movement. And then around the turn of the 1900s, I know I've told you that many times, there was a man that came out of the holiness movement that, named Charles Parham, and he had rented a house in Topeka, Kansas. Have you ever been to Topeka, Kansas? It's on your way to our turkey hunting grounds. Me and Shane have split through there before, and they had a house, and they began to seek for, is there something more? Is there something even beyond this work of sanctification? And so, you know that story, and I don't want to develop it all today, because i got to end this message in just a moment and take you where I want you to go. But they began to develop a thought that was called a third work of grace, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so, when, if you look back at the doctrinal belief, the doctrinal belief that was held by early Pentecostalism is that you were saved. We talked about that, salvation, didn't we? And then you were sanctified, set free from sin. But then there was the belief suddenly that there's a third work of grace that you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are a few, I don't want to be disrespectful and call you old timers here today, but you are familiar with the term saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. That was a term that began to thunder through Pentecostalism. And so when people came together and God was pouring His Spirit out, when somebody got saved, it was a desire to see them sanctified. They were taught how to live a holy life how to overcome sin, how to daily mortify the flesh, how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, how to be holy before God, how to walk in the anointing of God, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit with divine evidence of speaking in other tongues and the empowering gifts of the Holy Spirit. Saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that doctrine was unfolding. I don't know what time it is. Can I keep going just a little bit longer? I mean, I, I, I cut off the evening service because I want to take the pressure off the back end. And so, as it began, I only got Shane that said amen. So, Shane, if they all leave, it'll be like our turkey hunt trips. It'll be me and you. I'll get Shane saying, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Glory to God. So, with that, though, that's the way the early church, that's the way the early Pentecostal church began to thunder. But a climatic moment took place in 1911. Let me tell you about it a little bit. Are y'all okay with me sharing history? I don't know a lot about the history of the church, but I know quite a bit about the history of Pentecostalism. And so there was a man out of Chicago named William Durham. William Durham heard about what was happening at Azusa Street, which was in Los Angeles, that had happened in 1906 through 1908. 
And so, and then, and then it was resurfacing. And so he, he longed for, and, and I may miss the dates just a little bit. He longed, he heard about it because the people in Chicago had gone to Azusa, came back, and they were, and he, he had been preaching a Baptist. He was a Baptist pastor, but he's very charismatic, and he heard about it, and he looked at it, and he said, I want it. And he prayed and he never got it, so he took himself a pilgrimage, and he headed to Los Angeles, and he spent two weeks. Two weeks, and they had service every day, all day, including night. And he longed for it, and he waited. And that's why we tell you, if you've not received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, don't give up. Don't give up and say, it's not for me. No, begin to consecrate your heart and life deeper. Deeper, seek God. I believe if you'll seek the Lord, you'll find Him. And so, oh man, I felt that right there. Now listen, and so he did, and he sought the Lord. And on what was to be have been the last day of his two-week pilgrimage, that he received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He had this new power and anointing, and he went back to Chicago, and they began to call that a new Azusa. And he began to preach with power, and he himself testified that he was saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit. But as he went back and as he began to look deeper, and as in his private time he began to study, as he began to study, he began to struggle with this doctrine of the second work of grace of sanctification. And he believed that when a person was saved, that they were immediately not only saved, but also sanctified and ready to receive the Holy Spirit. And so this doctrine that was held by so many in early Pentecostalism, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit, was suddenly confronted with another doctrine called the finished work of Calvary. And the theology that he began to share was that Calvary's blood was sufficient for you to be sanctified. Though he himself held to a belief that the believer could become entirely sanctified and overcome sin. When's the last time in a modern Pentecostal church you heard anybody tell you about entire sanctification? When's the last time you ever turned on the television and watched a contemporary preacher and he looked through the screen and told you, God wants you sanctified from sin? Somehow or another, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and the tub and the sink as well. And so, a conflict began to emerge that came to a head. Did you know that William Durham traveled back to Azusa and began to preach? Charles, uh, you, anybody remember William Daddy Seymour? The, 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 the black evangelist that had started the revival was out of town. When William Durham went over there, they let him preach. They called him back. And William Seymour held to save, sanctified, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he confronted Durham with it. And there was divisiveness. And Seymour locked him out, locked out Durham out of Azusa Street. How many know that many times men get in the way of sovereign move of God? Men even that have been mightily used by God. So there's this contention that begins to mount. And so finally they brought back the original man, Charles Parham. Remember Charles Parham who started the Bible school in 1900? And they said, you tell us what you believe. And he believed strongly in saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And in January of 1912, he put out, spiritually speaking, a Russian roulette prayer. And he said these words, and I'm going to paraphrase. He said, if our doctrine is right, he said, let this other brother's life be taken from him. And if his doctrine is right, let our doctrine, let, me, let my life be taken from me. And in June, excuse me, July of the same year, seven months later, William Durham suddenly and mysteriously passed away 
at the age of 39 years. But many say it was too late. The doctrine of the finished work had already been embraced by new people groups. And one of the new people groups was the Assemblies of God that would start in 1914. Now, I'm not saying that I'm in the other camp. I'm in the finished work of Calvary camp. The problem that I see today is that somehow or another, we've taken out of the middle somewhere this doctrine of sanctification. And that's why, church family, in our generation, we've got men and women who don't know how to walk holy before God. They don't know how to live a holy life. Number one, they don't even know they're supposed to live a holy life. Number two, they don't even know that they can be equipped by God to live a holy life. Because we fail to teach and bring people into the revelation. What happened, and you and I and some of once again the old timers will tell you that the church drifted into a form of legalism. And we began to define sanctification by a few key areas of human existence. And if you, if you met our expectation in a few certain areas, we said you were sanctified. And if you failed in certain areas, we said you need to be sanctified. But you know what? Today, we've drifted so far from even that. Today, you can't even stand in a pulpit in most of the churches in America and address issues of life that we know the Spirit of God is grieved about. Lest somebody say, well, preacher, you're just trying to put me under the law. Well, I know when I read the law, it doesn't talk about my choice of movies. Oh, I knew it'd get real quiet in here. And so I know that when I read the law, it didn't talk about a lot of the modern things that we allow into our lives. I understand that. But the principle is still abiding in the Scriptures. The Spirit of God is inside you, and He can be grieved. He can be grieved, but he will empower you to live a holy life if you'll embrace him. If you'll look to the heavens and say, Father, I've got the Spirit in my heart. Let me live a holy life for your glory. I've got the anointing on my life. I'm not my own. I was called and I was chosen by you, God. And I want every part of my existence to reflect you. I want it to be the business decisions that I make. I want it to be the entertainment choices that I make. I want it to be the things that I read. Yes, your personal choices are speaking uh, something about you, good or bad. But they're not just speaking about you. They're speaking about your communion with God. And you're testifying and witnessing about God in a way that I believe that many times we're given a mirage in our generation. And the reason why I'm going to say this to you today as I'm getting ready to close is that God is holy. God is sacred, and God's called us to be sacred. God's called us to be holy. And it doesn't mean that we have this mindset that we walk around and we're better than everyone else. No, we're humble before God. We recognize and we love people. It doesn't mean that you don't love people. Dear God, when you've got a work of sanctification in your heart, you do love people because God loves people. God loves people. Some of the things that we so cling to. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 3 as I close today? Colossians 3, Paul said, set your heart. He said, set not your affections on things on the earth, but set your affections on things above. Where Christ is. How many know so many things around us dominate our thoughts and our 
aspirations and our desires that one day, church family, they're just going to be whipped up and gone like a puff of smoke. But there's eternal things that God wants his people to be about. He's put a sacred anointing on your life. Did y'all know that? Now, see, I believe if you're going to to ask me, say, Pastor, where do you stand theologically? I hate to say it, but I got a little bit of one foot in the old way, saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit, and I got the other foot in the finished work of Calvary. I've got a little bit of a blended theological position on that, uh, on that particular subject matter. I believe if you are born again, born by the Spirit, then you are sanctified before God. But I also believe the power of the Holy Spirit inside you is the action, the function for you to live a sanctified life before Him. Because you were called to holiness. Did you know that? Why is that a bad term in the generation in which we live? Why is that a term? Nobody would start a church today and call themselves the holiness church. Would you know we're the summit church or we're the church of the redeemed? Well, I'll tell you what. God said he was holy and he was looking for a holy people. Did y'all hear that today? I said God is holy and he's calling out a holy people. And this is an anointing service, and I'm closing it right now for the sake of time because I want to pray with you here today. You say, Pastor Brown, what do you mean an anointing service? I believe first that which is natural and that which is spiritual. And I want to take anointing oil for whoever will will come to the front, and we're just going to, this is not baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is not, I'm a, that's going to be next week and the weeks ahead. I'm not, I'm not going to stay and pray with you for 17 hours on each person. But I do want to put a fresh anointing for the purpose of reminding you. How many of you saw people walking around Wednesday with a cross made in ashes on their forehead? Right? As it was Ash Wednesday. Well, this is Sanctification Sunday. Right? So we're going we're gonna to put a fresh anointing. And I know it's natural. There's nothing magical in this oil. But there is power in the Holy Spirit. And this just represents the biblical analogy of the priesthood when they were anointed. And I want you, did you know this oil's got a fragrant anointing oil with some of the same fragrances? I anoint my head with it before I preach every Sunday, and there's a fragrance release. I want you to walk out of here today, and I want you to have the awareness that you've been anointed, and there's a fragrant anointment on your life, and God's called you to be holy. Right? God's called you to be holy. So I want to ask you to stand up with me today. And I'm going to ask you today, the, all of you that will, I'm not going to see who doesn't come forward, uh, that, but I want to just ask you to just come to the front, and Daryl or whoever wants to join me on the platform or whatever we need, I appreciate that every bit as well. But let me tell you, church family, this is not a moment about between me and you. Did y'all hear that? This is not a moment between me and you. This is a moment between you and God. This is, this is where you are saying, God, I want that anointing on my life. God, I want to walk in sanctification. I want, to be a, I want to live holy before you. I want my life to have a consistent fragrance of Christ that I can affect people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to just ask you today. So, And I know the majority of our church family is coming in. I know it will take me a little bit of time, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm going to come by and just anoint you with oil. I want you to stay. Let me ask you, if you come forward, stay until you get anointed with oil. 
Stay. And I want, then I want to say this to our other leaders and ministers and those that feel compelled. You feel compelled to pray with somebody today, then you need to go to them. Don't wait around on us spiritual superstars, because if you do, you will be sadly disappointed. Right? But you, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, feel led to go and begin to pray with somebody. Then why not do that? Aren't you a minister of God's sanctuary? Right? Aren't you somebody that God can use? So today, now listen, I want to say this to you today. You know where you're at in your relationship with God. I don't. And I wish I could say, well, God, when I come to you, he'll tell me. No, no, this is about between you and God. You've got sin in your life, confess it. Let me say that again. Why are we afraid to say amen? If you've got sin in your life, confess it. Right? Repent of it. Isn't that what the Bible says? If, there, if I've sinned, I confess my sin, ask the Lord to forgive me. He will then cleanse me of all unrighteousness, and I'll be in sweet communion with him. So that's between you and God, and I'm going to do my part. My part is to anoint you with oil, and I'm going to anoint you on the top of your head like it was in the days of Aaron today, and then I'm going to just leave you to a time of consecration. Did you hear that? I'm going to just leave you to a time of consecration today in the name of Jesus, just to a time of consecration. Spirit of God. Church family, begin to pray with me if you would. God, we just, a time of consecration in the name of Jesus. A time of consecration. Dedication to you, God. We want what you want. God, you chose us in your son, in Christ. You chose us. God, let us receive that today. Walk in it by faith in the name of Jesus. A time of consecration, Jill. God of sanctification.